0: as Catholics, we know how powerful it is to walk day by day in the abiding presence of God and in the fellowship of His saints. Today's guest is a homeschooling dad and the founder of ARC's Publishing, Tony Schiavo, here with some exciting ways to homeschool with the saints for history and literature.
1: Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Mladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections.
0: Before we get started, remember to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you're watching on YouTube, click the bell to join our channel. Hello and welcome. I'm Lisa Maladnik, your host, and it's a joy to welcome Tony Schiavo back to the program to empower us to homeschool with the saints for history and literature. Tony Schiavo is a Catholic husband and father residing in New Jersey. When he's not enjoying life with his wife and six children, he spends his days publishing textbooks in the Allied Health Professions and Special Education for a mid-sized New Jersey publisher. He moonlights as the co-founder and president of ARCS Publishing, a small Catholic press that he has run since 2001. ARCS primarily serves the Catholic homeschooling community, publishing new historical novels for young readers, as well as reprints and new translations of classic works on Roman, early church, and medieval history. Tony has two books of his own to his credit, I Am a Christian, Authentic Accounts of Christian Martyrdom and Persecution from the Ancient Sources, and Iroquois Wars One, extracts from the Jesuit Relations and Primary Sources, 1535 to 1650. You can find Tony Schiavo and his popular catalog of homeschooling resources at www.arxpub.com. P-U-B, and that's in the show notes. Welcome back to the show, Tony.
1: Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be back with you.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, I know you're super busy, so really appreciate your time. I want to get right to one of the achievements of your company, Arx Publishing, is a series of beautiful works on the lives of Catholic saints and heroes. So just say a little bit first about why these are important stories to tell.
1: Uh, You know, I have always felt that uh, part of the issue with modern society is that uh, there's a real there's been an effort to denigrate heroes more generally. Uh, and as in the, within the Catholic Church, we have not only heroes, we have amazing people, uh, thousands of people who are saints, uh, canonized saints, blessed, venerable servants of God, all of these amazing people who are to be role models for us. And, you know, some of them have been torn down. We've seen uh, some of them had their statues literally torn down. Uh, And other ones have been more figuratively torn down uh, in, you know, media, social media, just, uh, you know, or even worse, forgotten and ignored. Right. So Mm -hmm. I looked at the, you know, publishing as an opportunity to put those folks back in front of people. And so, I mean, some of the most fascinating people in all of recorded history are the Catholic saints and even people who are atheists, not Catholic, uh, they'll recognize that as well. Uh, And the one that I always think of immediately is Joan of Arc. And uh, speaking of history and literature, uh, there is a famous work called Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain.
0: Oh, yes, yes. That's so do you
1: know? I don't know if you know anything about that. That knocks around
0: homeschooling circles for sure.
1: It's a great book. Uh, It's one of my all time favorite books. Uh, And the craziest thing about it is Mark Twain was very anti Catholic. He was not a uh, proponent of the Catholic faith at all. And, and in fact, uh, I did a little research uh, back when, before, you know, uh, I guess about 10, 15 years ago, uh, on a, his book, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. I had never read it as a child. And it's one of those books that's always talked about and recommended of his. So I, I read it and I was appalled. I was like, this is an anti-Catholic screed, this book. <laughs> and I did some research on it. And it lo and behold, He even said during his lifetime to the reviewers who were reviewing his book, please don't mention that this book takes slaps at the Catholic church. I want it to be a surprise. (sighs) So I didn't realize that until, you know, I did this research when I was writing my review and I was like, oh my goodness. And then the crazy thing is I I always knew Twain had an antipathy for the Catholic church. I just never realized that it went that deep. And uh, the crazy thing is though, So he wrote that book. And then 15 years later, he wrote Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, which is a beautiful book. And it really doesn't take shots at the Catholic Church at all. And if you read the Ignatius Press edition and the notes and the introduction that come with it, there's a a couple of fascinating biographical notes about Twain that apparently later in his life, I wouldn't say he had a conversion experience, but he had an experience whereby I, I think a close relative of him, maybe his daughter, entered the convent. And he, and there's a quote in that, uh, in that book that they have in the introduction that says something like, I'm not a Christian or a religious man, but if I were to become one, I'd want to be a Catholic. So wow. this is a guy who, you know, 15 years before that was writing, you know, secret, uh, you know, it kind of hidden screeds attacking the Catholic church. And now he's like, he's completely turned around. And I always looked at personal recollections of Joan of Arc as his like uh, penance almost he wrote that book almost as a penance for what he had done before and it really is a beautiful book so that's one of those books that you know it combines history it combines literature and it combines the life of the saint in a very you know he followed the the historical sources very closely and you know he it's a beautiful uh biography of her novel biographical novel of her written in Twain's style so that's one that i always recommend and that's like one of the segues directly into you can teach literature and history and lives of the saints all in one
0: wow i love that so much and you touched on some things that i think are really important um, one is that conversion or that movement toward the church can happen unexpectedly in a person's life, and we always want to have hope. But also that sometimes, like I know someone I dearly love, I'm very close to, who loves St. Padre Pio and St. Anthony, loves them like they're friends, but doesn't believe Jesus was divine. And so, <laughs> like, there, there's this cognitive dissonance, and yet, you recognize and want to respect and kind of be affectionate about that open door to grace, that that there's a friendship there, that those two can be counted on to lead others to the Eucharist. And, and so it's really neat to see all these kind of mysterious connections happen with people.
1: Yeah, and you know that the saints are, you know, if someone is, has a, a devotion to those saints, but is not a Catholic or a Christian even, uh, they can, I, I believe that if you pray, to you're praying to the saints, the saints are praying for you. The saints recognize that this person has a devotion and they want to lead people to Christ. So that's what, you know, they're going to be praying in heaven for that person to get there.
0: Yeah, and so many of the saints too had somewhat extreme personalities. Didn't doesn't Jesus say at one point or scripture says, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's so, in Revelation, so, yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in Revelation, thank you. Um, because if we're just kind of lukewarm, mushing along without any conviction for or against, that's a much harder place to reach someone than someone who's passionate and has some sense of reaching for what's true.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned Padre Pio, because I have in my pile of books to that I wanted to kind of go through as we went through this uh, interview. One of them is called Wounds of Love by yeah. Philip Campbell. And it's a, a biography. This is another one, which if you're reading your way through history, you know, if you're using kind of uh, the Maureen Whitman approach to teaching, uh, you know, teaching subjects via a historical fiction novels or, not, or uh, literature of any kind, this is one that fits in really nicely because it's a nice little and it's new. It's a nice little biography of the early life of Padre Pio. It focuses on the early life. It kind of goes through his later life a little bit more uh in a little bit less detail. But it's really, you know, and it really personifies him. It kind of takes him out of like he's not just a holy card figure anymore. This is kind of puts the flesh and bones on his, on his, especially his youth. So a great, that's a great, another great one that uh, should probably, you know, I would recommend for a lot of homeschooling families uh, who are, you know, especially like we set it up in such a way that uh, we're working our way through history and we're hanging these historical novels off as we go in the proper order that they go in. So this one, when you're studying the kind of mid 20th century, it's got a couple of really cool little vignettes about World War II in that book. Uh, so, you know, that, those are segues, right. So it all kind of ties together. And, uh, you know, I just, I found that book, uh, to be really one of the ones that we assign to our kids all the time.
0: Yeah, and I really want to go deeper into this question of how, okay, so we we know we kind of get the gist of, they have a historical context. And these are works of literature. And there's all sorts of value that can happen here. So we're going to take a quick break to hear from our wonderful sponsors at Homeschool Connections. And then we will be right back for just some more specifics, some of the ways that you incorporate these beautiful life stories into history and literature study. Everybody stay with us. We'll be right back with Tony Shiavo talking about ways to homeschool with the saints for history and literature. Be right back.
1: Hi, I'm Walter Crawford.
0: And I'm Maureen Whitman.
1: We are the co-founders of homeschoolconnections.com and proud sponsors of the Homeschooling Saints podcast.
0: Which is here to help you homeschool more joyfully, more easily, and more effectively.
1: We want to thank you for listening.
0: And we invite you to check out our courses at homeschoolconnections.com. And now,
1: back to our program.
0: All right. We're back with Tony Schiavo. talking about ways to homeschool with the saints for history and literature. And we've been talking about just that historical context and these how important these stories are. So step us into some of what you do and what you recommend for incorporating these stories
1: right. So uh, you have to think about and for my own uh, purposes, I thought about what uh, I wanted my kids to get out of reading these books. Uh, do I want them to be uh, educated on history? Yes, but uh, really, when we started to homeschool, to take a step back, we always fe- felt the most important thing was teaching virtue. Uh, and part of you know reading history is you're learning virtue, right? You're learning about these virtuous historical figures from the past, or these wicked historical figures from the past, and or and the ones in between who made some virtuous choices maybe made some wicked choices and maybe were redeemed at the end of their lives you know all of these people have amazing stories to tell so uh and the other issue was uh in more modern times we're uh, afflicted with a lot of resources that have a political bias or overtones that are not especially catholic or hostile to catholicism so uh when looking for resources one of the things that i did was i looked for primary sources uh, and this comes from my background in history as well as a history scholar, as uh, as a young person when I was going through university. Uh, I always felt like I was getting not the whole story when I was reading the textbook version of history. So uh, part of homeschooling, the imp- one of the important things with homeschooling was getting the kids elbow deep into the primary sources. And one of the books that I always there's a couple of books that I always recommend, one of them that we did. Uh, is, uh, a, cause it's an issue that comes up constantly nowadays, or at least, uh, you know, with some regularity is the crusades. And of course we know what the secular media and, uh, te- secular textbooks are going to say about the crusades. But, uh, so we published a book called the first crusade accounts of eyewitnesses and participants, which was originally published in 1911. And is now, uh you know, we've republished it in a relatively inexpensive paperback edition. So anybody can kind of pick it up and look at it. And when you read through it, you're reading, you know, an eyewitness's account of Pope Urban II calling for the crusade at Clermont. And, you know, you have not only him, but two other people who are also there who had their own impressions of the event. And then kind of step by step, taking you through how the crusading armies formed, how they kind of marched their way across Europe sometimes unhappily in certain places and it's very you know you get both sides you get uh there's it's really cool once you get to they get to constantinople you get the account of the franks the who made up the bulk of the army and you get the account of Anna anacomnina who was the queen, uh, princess uh of the emperor at constantinople so you get her account of these filthy barbarians who came through, as a, <laughs> and then you get the Frankish account of how duplicitous the the Byzantines were when they got to Constantinople. So you kind of see both sides, mm. and you know. So this this book is a classic example of a book that weaves these primary sources, not all of which have uh, you know the same opinion. It kind of weaves them together so that the student can read them and say, "Oh, okay, I c- I can make my own judgment as to what I think really happened here."
0: Wow, I love that. Um yeah, I, that when you're talking about primary sources too, there's this reverence that we have too for their context that current, I'll say contemporary kind of agenda-driven histories don't respect. They will apply meanings that are very contemporary and as you said, political that weren't there for that person at that time. And they'll abolish our ability to even access sources or they'll blacklist sources because they, when you read them from a modern perspective, they don't They're not politically correct enough or whatever that is. They may not be easy to interpret. And so uh, there's all this baloney that goes on. So, yeah, so that makes so much sense to go back to those times with a respect for the times, too. What were the people like at that time? What motivated them?
1: Right. And, uh, you know, that I think is the key, is that it puts the student, the reader into the the milieu, the the history, the historical setting so that you're not reading it from a 21st century perspective, you're actually reading it from the perspective of somebody who was there and who had their own, you know, you realize realized that, okay, these were other, these were human beings like I am. They had their own biases. They had their own, uh, uh, you know, political persuasions that we don't even understand today. right? Uh, you know, so, Uh, you know, if you start reading books that uh, where people are violently uh, in opposition, because one is a Guelph and one is a Ghibelline. I mean, what do those things even mean to us today? I mean, that's what people (laughs) are going to say when they read about Democrats and Republicans, you know, 200 years from now, they're going to be, you know, why were they (laughs) so at each other's throats so much? I don't get it. So but Mm -hmm. this, you know, being able to kind of look back and kind of take yourself out of the 21st century, put yourself into uh, the setting of, you know, a night uh, sitting outside of Antioch on the first crusade, wondering whether he's going to live to see the next day or not.
0: <laughs> wow! Um,
1: it's really kind of, uh, you know, I, I feel like that's the way to teach history and make it interesting.
0: Yeah, amen. So, So you talked about kind of looking at your historical timeline, your kids are studying a particular point in history, and then you start to connect these really special kind of windows into real lives that were happening at that time that kind of takes it off the 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 timeline on the wall and into the hearts and minds of your children what are some specific ones that you've used and and how have you used them
1: so we've used that one the 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 first crusade book that i mentioned the other one i honestly it's the book one of the books that i wrote which is uh, i am a christian i am a christian is uh, called that because it's specifically a book about the early martyrs uh and it basically starts with the crucifixion and it goes kind of step by step through uh, the first 300 years of the church, through the eyes of early Christian martyrs. And all these accounts were specifically ones that I chose to include. They're primary sources again. They're specifically ones that I chose to include because they are about 90% uh, understood to be authentic. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of golden legend things about, you know, uh, these stories of the saints that were made up 400, 500, 1,000 years after the event. These are not, and a lot of them are ones that we have trial transcripts. The Romans were meticulous record keepers, and they kept records of the trials. So what the Christians, what they used to do was when they got into, because they would make converts who were in Roman authority, they would go back into the archives and pull those trials of the saints and martyrs out. And we have a good number of them that are preserved. And we know that they did that because Diocletian later specifically tried to burn all of those.
0: <laughs>
1: and he did. He he actually one of the one most the coolest accounts that's in that book is uh from a trial. It's basically a transcript uh where it was read back during the trial, the minutes of what happened when this Roman magistrate went from town to town in Africa, went into the houses of the Christians with armed men and said Turn over all the works of literature that you have in this house. And where are the other works of literature? We want those too. Tell me who else has them. So we have an actual transcript from the fourth century of somebody doing that during the persecution. So it's (laughs) accounts like that that are included in that book. And again, it's an example of let's put the student directly into uh, the setting of what was going on. Like it's one thing to say, okay, there was a persecution in Carthage in 308 A.D., well, what do we know about it? Well, it turns out we actually know quite a bit. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, we have like literal eyewitness records and trial transcripts from those times. So, uh, wow. and and that's one of the other uh, kind of crazy things. See, so a lot of these things were, I got interested in them be, just from having debates with people who would say things like, well, it's, uh, the Christians were responsible for the destruction of classical civilization, which is kind of a crazy thing to say considering classical civilization fell in the West, but it remained in the East for another thousand years, which, and the East was completely Christian.
0: Mm. So
1: it it probably wasn't Christianity that did it with some other factors, which, you know, kind of go beyond the scope of this discussion. But uh, those are the kind of debates that young people face you know they go into college and people say as as if it's a matter of fact oh yeah the christians were responsible for the destruction of classical civilization the christians burned down the library in alexandria the christians uh you know killed uh uh, uh hypatia in alexandria right all of these things right uh without understanding what the context is without knowing the uh the underlying stories for any of these things so a lot mm-hmm. of that so i am a, i am a christian was basically written because that was what the Christians used to say when they were brought to trial. They would say, uh, you know, they would be accused, and they would just say, "Look, I'm a Christian. I'm guilty." <laughs> That's what that meant. Who's saying I'm a, I am a Christian basically meant I'm guilty. You, you can just put me to death now. And we can dispense with all this other stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it's really uh, sadly we're seeing so much of this today. Desire to destroy the past, memories of the past, pulling down monuments, as you said, banning books, uh, revisionist histories, uh, censorship, government intimidation. Um, we see so much of this bubbling up and around us. It's great to see from our children's standpoint that that the Christians didn't give up hope. They no. knew where they were headed. And when they saw all this stuff, they stood firm and it was by grace. They didn't have to like gin up courage. God was there with them.
1: Yeah, and they had an expectation that uh, when they were put into that circumstance the Holy Spirit was going to help them and put the words into their mouth. Uh you, that comes through very clearly. Uh well, I I must say that what else comes through very clearly is not all of them were faithful. <laughs> <laughs> right. What you see, like what you see in some of the accounts is that the the laity were faithful whereas some of the bishops were not, which is you know, you, you get a little bit, uh, but some of them were. I mean, you have men like Cyprian too, who was bishop and martyr, right? And one of the great, <laughs> uh, right. one of the great fathers of the church. So, yes. and many of the popes, many of the early popes. I uh, think the
0: first thirty I read were all yes. martyred. Who That's wanted right. that job? Who was willing no. to say yes to that job?
1: Well, they knew it was coming, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, crazy, right? It's and crazy. The, the, Yeah, the the courage of these folks.
1: So it's it's interesting you say that because one of the books that we published early on was called The Book of the Popes. And that's Mm. another example of a, uh, it was written, it was compiled in about 600 AD and it goes through all of the early popes up through Gregory the Great. I mean, it doesn't quite reach Gregory, but it's the Pope before him. And um, the ones that were written later were more contemporary to when the work came out. But the earlier ones were all dependent upon earlier sources that are no longer extant. So wow. you really get a lot of good content out of that, really good material about the early church. And just, you know, some of the some of that uh, content's not found anywhere else. That's the only place that we know about those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so these are all—step uh, t- us into the framework, too, of um, where's this— Um, kind of integration with history and literature what are what do we mean by
1: that well i use it to mean uh Mm -hmm. for instance when we're publishing books one of the things i i try to say to myself when we're considering uh, a new book is are people going to read this 100 years from now are they going to be inspired by this book 100 years from now or is this kind of a uh a flash in the pan is it uh, gimmicky is it you know um but So that's one of the criteria I use. I try to say, like, is this, because we're really publishing, you know, my my goal is when this when I pass on and uh, all this work is there, uh, my goal is to have someone else be able to pick it up and say it's just as relevant to us 50 years on, 100 years on, 200 years on as it was back then. Hmm. So, uh, and I I look at literature kind of the same way. uh, And some of these, I, I consider some of the things that we've done that they will be recognized as works of literature if they're not already uh like you know significant works of literature um but and some of the books that we distribute for other publishers are already considered that like i already mentioned uh mark twain's uh, personal recollections of joan of arc but uh ignatius press also does all of the books uh or a good number of the novels by lewis DeWall. and i don't know if you're familiar with him but he wrote uh you know, of the books that of uh, that we have, we have probably about a dozen of his books that we carry for Ignatius Press. Uh, among them the golden uh, the Golden Thread, uh, The Joyful Beggar, which is probably my favorite one of all of them, which is about St Francis. and it's a brilliant book about St Francis. and he Louis DeWall is a legit like classic historic author, historical fiction author. Uh, that book is just does some beautiful things, not just with the history but with the literature, the literary aspect as well. It's one of these books that's a parallel life. So it starts off where you have uh where you have Saint Francis, you know, uh, Francis on one side and then you have this kind of uh fictional character on the other. Uh, and they start off Francis is rich, this guy's poor and their lives kind of and Francis is kind of worldly and this guy is not. And their world their lives take go run in parallel, they cross multiple times, and then they end up in very different places at the end. As wow. you can imagine where Francis ends up, and you can imagine where that leads to this this guy as well. So, mm-hmm. so this was just one of his techniques. So it's, that's a way to teach literature as well. Like this is how you write a good story. Um, this that's what draws you into this. You're interested in these characters, right? Uh, you know that Francis is a real historical person. This other guy is not, but his life is very interesting. And you kind of, and you see why DeWall did it. They're basically mirror images of each other. And so, you know, that is a way to teach writing. It's a way to teach, you know, Duwal writes up here. You know, he's not, nothing's dumbed down. It's uh, even though these are, we, you know, we market them as books for uh, teens and young adults, but they're really meant for adults. I mean, they're, they're, the writing level is high. And, and I've always felt that too. When you're teaching, when you're reading these books with your kids, you want to keep the reading level high. And if they don't understand things, they'll ask you. Some mm-hmm. of them ask a little too often.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um,
1: but, uh, you know, that's that's what I felt like I wanted to do was to give my kids the opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, read up, basically, not not read things that I felt were kind of dumbed down just for kids.
0: Hmm. That's so exciting, and when you think about those stories being read aloud in the context of the love of the family, um, that mom and dad are modeling the importance of the words and the stories, and 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 of and of being and having an inquiring mind as you read something, of asking great questions, and then pausing to have that conversation. I just see so many really solid values being modeled there.
1: That's just it, and that that's where the virtues come in as well, because you can. You'll see a conflict come up in the book and you'll be able to say something like oh uh, what should this character do at this point or what do you think he's going to do based on what you know about him or her right so uh that's one of the ways that as i go to go back to an earlier point that you kind of focus on the virtues right uh so that you're this isn't just a study of literature it's not just a study of history it's a study of human nature and good versus evil and you know Is this character doing the right thing or are they doing the wrong thing, right? And why? And how does this fit into the teachings of the church about what's moral and what's not moral, right? Is this guy being a good Catholic by doing this or is he being a bad Catholic or is he being a a horrible sinner and an apostate by doing this? Yes, yes. All of that stuff comes into play. And those are the kind of conversations that we like to have grow out of these uh, reading
0: assignments yeah so we could even say you know kind of character development work is happening concurrently there's a lot of neat things that weave naturally into the process
1: yeah that's that's just it i mean uh we i've always said that uh our education system currently is really good at creating brilliant atheists which is not necessarily what society needs i mean what you end up with then is a lot of really really intelligent people whose ethical values are eh, a little questionable sometimes and that leads us to scientific places where we may not want to go and they don't understand why they shouldn't do those sorts of things mm-hmm. um and, and in medicine i mean we've seen it all within the last 5 years right uh, a lot of kind of questionable medical decisions made a lot of qu- questionable scientific decisions made and you know we're kind of living in a post christian society where that those things are not inculcated in people as as, as part of their education
0: Mm, yeah, exactly. So let's spend a few minutes just talking about the authors themselves. Uh, as you mentioned, we can encourage our kids to begin to write and you have found some of your authors in surprising places. They're not all well known people like Louis de or or, um, or even Philip Campbell, who a lot of our Homeschool Connections listeners know very, very well. And he's known in other circles too. So let's say a little bit about where you're finding great voices.
1: So uh, we go to a lot of homeschool conferences. Uh, We are actively seeking uh, to encourage homeschoolers to write. We used to run a contest uh, that we would do in our little literary magazine, which is called the Tarpeian and Rock, uh, about encouraging them to write short stories. And then we would kind of take those short stories and see if we could develop that person into a full-fledged author of a book. Uh, as it turned out, we were a little too successful at that and we have a full pipeline. (laughs) So we've got a lot of books incoming, but, uh, you know, uh, we have, and then we have people like, uh, Katie Campbell, Catherine Campbell, who is someone who was an intern with us, uh, as a young person. Uh, she wrote a book with us when she was about 19 years old, 20 years old, which was for kids. And she wrote it and illustrated it herself. Uh, and then she went off and she went to, uh, John Paul, the great, university in san diego which is all about that same kind of mission they're about kind of building up young catholics and putting them in position to enter the media right and to enter uh entertainment and design video games and design and uh, write movie scripts and be a videographer and all this kind of stuff and now she's married she has four little kids and she has about oh half a dozen books to her name at this point that she's kind of independently published and is just uh you know out there selling them Uh, And they're they're good. They're good little books for um, uh, for teenagers, especially. Uh, You know, she writes uh, for that niche as well. And she's I feel like she's one of our prodigies that we kind of uh, set loose in the world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, wonderful. And another one is
1: another one is Nathan Sadasivan, who uh, wrote Crown of the World for us. And uh, you know, he he was a contest winner for us, and he wrote that book uh when he was 19 again i think so 19 seems to be the age when people are uh, are writing books
0: <laughs> wow that's really neat it's such a it's such a cliche the homeschooler that's written and published their own book but when you actually hear how good that work can be that's exciting that goes beyond the stereotype
1: yeah and it's funny crown of the world i was picking up a copy of it off uh off of our shelves uh, preliminary to this uh interview and uh, it's been battered because my kids have read it over
0: and over. <laughs> that's great. What so that's an endorsement. One
1: those, <laughs> it's one of those books that they really enjoyed. Um, and then there's the other ones. Uh, you know, These are just people that we met at uh, at some of the conferences that we were at. Uh, Gina Marie Tennant is one of them. And she's written now two books for Ignatius Press, one on uh, Lewis and Zelie, uh, the parents of St. Therese. And then this, there's this new one that just showed up on my doorstep, which is The American Little Flower. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, with blessed Miriam Teresa Demjanovic. No, I wasn't either. <laughs> so I read it and it's just, you know, it's a story about this uh, very holy blessed uh woman from uh from New Jersey. So wow. <laughs> you know, I, I never knew about her. And now she it's part of the Ignatius Press vision series.
0: Mm. Wonderful. I love those kinds of partnerships too, that you're you're elevating your own publishing projects, but you're also elevating other good work where you find it. Um, So how would you advise homeschooling parents to encourage this next generation to step up and do this work?
1: Um, I would say the first step is to have them read. Uh, You know, you can, you know, I have six kids. Not all of them are readers, right? Uh, But they all read a little bit. Uh, a couple of them read a lot. <laughs> so, uh, one of the way, if you have a child that's very creative and is able to, uh, you know, creativity of course expresses itself in a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. but if you have a child that can write really well, uh, I always say, give them good things to read. So, uh, if you have a child that is interested in writing and wants to, uh, increase their writing skills, uh, read, uh, you know, give them good literature to read, uh, you know, any of the, and again, a lot of the books that we publish, that's kind of the goal is to give them books that are above their level, so that they feel like they're reaching up to that. And so when they're writing, they're also going to reach up.
0: Yeah. And you know what I've noticed too, is that um before bedtime reading is kind of has uh, often we'll read to our children in the morning right there'll be a time for a little bit of reading but sometimes bedtime reading which my parents used to do i think of it as like adding to the word bank as they're entering into sleep right <laughs> that it's right. somehow their unconscious mind is gobbling up all these ideas and words and and then I, I feel like it kind of settles into them creatively in a particular way too so just a thought i don't know if that's really effective but it's a thought that i've had a lot
1: no, I, I think there's something to that. It's like the people who would put Mozart on when their children were asleep kind of thing. So <laughs> that's the, those kind of patterns or something would embed themselves <laughs> in the in the child's brain some way. Uh, yeah. I think something to that. We, we actually do a lot of uh, read-alouds while, uh, right after dinner because that's when uh, people are doing dishes. <laughs> so, so I'm oh, like,
0: you doing
1: dishes and uh, dad will be sitting there reading while they're doing the dishes and it makes their the, the chore a little bit less arduous. And uh, little do they know they're getting uh, they're getting an education while we're doing it.
0: That's so smart. I love it. Slip it in there where you can. Yes. Um, Yeah. So you mentioned that Ignatius Press has its vision series. Uh, You're definitely collaborating with other publishers, and that's so exciting. Love to see that Catholic family out there kind of linking arms. Any final thoughts to leave our listeners, listeners yeah. with? Yeah, <laughs> so
1: we, we do. We collaborate with a lot of uh, kind of small Catholic presses. We uh, There's one that's Catholic Vitality Press. I think he has six books. And he's one of these people that sent us a book. Uh, Jim Fitzhenry is his name. And he sent us a book called El Cid, God's Own Champion, a long time ago. And uh, when I first got it, I thought, this book's not going to be any good. It's just a self-published little book. It's not going to be, any... I read it and it's great. <laughs> so oh, we've been carrying that book wonderful. for 15 years now, and he's written uh, five or six more since then. And we carry most of those as well. And they're all usually lives of saints or Catholic heroes that I've never heard of before. Wow. And Hillside Education is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Margot Davidson does a lot of really great work. Uh, and, you know, they have a lot of really excellent reprints. I just read, uh, a book on, uh, uh, blessed, or I guess he's venerable Pierre Toussaint, uh, from New York.
0: Wonderful. Uh,
1: and that's a, a really nice little book. So she's got a lot of, a lot of American history, uh, kind of works in through that. And then, you know, there's Bethlehem books, which pr- publishes a whole bunch of, uh, you, most of them are reprints of older works, but they're classics. A lot of the Hilde Van Stockholm books in there. Uh, really good stuff for younger readers, especially for readers, you know, maybe 9 to 12.
0: Hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We'll throw some of these things in the show notes. Um, but everybody, to reach out to Tony Schiavo and look at this great catalog at ARX Publishing, just go to arxpub.com, and that's in the show notes. Uh, Tony, thank you so much. I really, I get how busy you are. And we appreciate your time. Thank you for really stepping us into an r- incredibly rich opportunity we have with our kids.
1: Well, thank you, Lisa. I, I, there's nothing I like better than talking about books. So you allowed me to, uh, to do that for a good half hour here. So thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we appreciate you. We're praying for you. Please pray for us too and have a beautiful day in the Lord.